If you're wondering why this sermon is titled, Lord, Deliver Us from Evil, today's message is broadly going to be on the elements of spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. And I'll soon be reading from Ephesians chapter 6. This is going to be just a purely topical message. I'll be bouncing around the Bible quite a bit, so I'll reference Ephesians 6, Mark 5, other places. We'll talk a little bit more about the demoniac. But before reading Ephesians 6, we as Christians are going to have to realize and accept that we are in a spiritual battle. In our nation, in our homes, in our churches, we are in a spiritual battle. You know, it's sometimes very difficult for us to appreciate because we don't normally see the evidences of uh, demonic activity. Unlike Jesus, those disciples, the people uh, from that town of Gadara who had, fit, who had witnessed the effects of these demons on that man, the demoniac, uh, unlike them, most of the time we don't see these types of symptoms in our day in America. Yet Scripture assures us this battle is very real. It's my belief the reason we don't more often see demon-possessed people screaming, cutting themselves, all of these other symptoms in our society, in America, is that Satan himself is adapted to our society. Our culture esteems naturalism. We, we very much elevate the sciences. We have very, much, very high regard for the sciences, higher than any other sources of authority as a culture. And as a result, you know, anything that, that is deemed religious or spiritual or demonic, it, it's, it's ridiculed as fable. And Satan knows that. So our culture has decided this is great stuff for movie screens, stories, a good scare perhaps around Halloween. But in the end, the spiritual realm is, is dismissed as baseless in America on, on the, on the uh, broad part. And Satan and his demons have surely seized upon this. Though demons certainly still do influence people in our society, they surely do possess people in our culture in America. Such people usually don't come across as crazy. They usually don't act strange and do these types of things. In fact, some of the most articulated people that we see in science, in, in leadership, in our country, in our scientific community, very respected people might very well be demonically possessed. That is a fact. That is a fact. Um, some pulpits. Satan is active. In the pews, Satan is active. He is active. We'll learn that today. Uh, demonics today may come across as perfectly rational people. For Scripture assures us, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They disguise themselves. Servants of righteousness, even in Paul's day. So those who are possessed by demons don't always act irrational as the demoniac did in Mark chapter 5. For if you recall, even at the point that that Satan himself entered into Judas Iscariot, 
Judas then, with the priests, approached Jesus, seemingly in his right mind, though he was out of his mind, saying to the priests, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. So not all demonic activity appears physically demonic, but demonic activity surely does leave behind evidence. No doubt about that. And we'll discover some of those evidences today, but not all. If we were to to look at all the various effects of evil spirits, we'd have to take a multi-week series. It's all over the place in the Bible. You know, the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, The wisdom from below is demonic. We can talk about wisdom. We can talk about physical behavior. We can talk about a whole bunch of things. What I wish to accomplish today in this topical are just two things. Only two things. That we accept as Christians, demonic spirits are very real and a substantial culprit in our day. They are very much real and here today. And number two, we see how we as Christians properly engage in spiritual warfare. How we do it in a very practical sense. How we do battle against the satanic principalities and powers, for they are very real, as we see beginning reading from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This is a very familiar passage. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be, in, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me at the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. To be effective in this battle, this spiritual warfare, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. You know, most of the time when this passage is taught, uh, we're provided with an extensive description of, of all this armor. A lot of attention is, is given to the centurion, his armor, how he used it, how it functioned in battle. How do you hold the shield? And how did they properly thrust and cut with a sword and all of those things? It is helpful, sometimes very cute. I'm just not that creative, folks. I'm not. Today, I would just like us to focus on our practical weapons of warfare. Why? So that we will be able to resist 
in the evil day. Does anyone question that we're in an evil day? In the previous chapter, Paul told Ephesians, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Every era, every day is evil. We dwell amongst evil demonic forces of darkness. There are thousands of them. They are everywhere, folks. You want some evidence to that? Take in account the story of the demoniac that we read earlier from Mark chapter 5. You know, that poor man, he was filled with so many evil spirits that the chief spirit amongst them referred to them all as legion. I'm legion. And a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men. At his arrest, Jesus said he could have immediately summoned 12 legions of good angels. That's 72,000 of them. In a moment, Jesus could have summoned that many good angels. And in case you didn't know it, uh, evil spirits are fallen angels. That's what they are. Uh, We know from Revelation 12 that Satan deceived about a third of them to follow him into rebellion against God. So how many evil angels are represented in this one-third? How many are we dealing with in the world? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, the Apostle John says this, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, this is in heaven now, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This reference to myriads of angels is again found in Hebrew 12.22. And that Greek term myrios, we transfer it myriad, simply refers to an innumerable number. Innumerable. Lots of them. Thousands upon thousands. You know that just 1,000 times 1,000 is a million? So we can be confident there are at least many, many millions of angels, a third of whom fell. At least millions of evil spirits are out there deceiving the world. It should not be the least surprising to us because there there are 7 billion people in the world. Would it be surprising that there are at least millions of fallen angels? There, There are probably millions of evil spirits working to deceive mankind, to deceive us. And from many places in Scripture, this is comforting, at least some of them like to inhabit bodies. Even pigs. Does that mean that we have millions of demon-possessed people in our midst? We don't know for sure. But, but look at this. This parallel account of the demoniac is found in Luke chapter 8. And, and legion, as he called themselves, I guess you would say, he pleaded with Jesus not to send them into the abyss. That would be the place of eternal torment found in Revelation 20. And in Mark 5 verse 12, It says, the demons implored Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. Again, he's in control. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Notice a couple things. First, 
Jesus, being God incarnate, has full authority over the demons. Full authority. Just as God had full authority over Satan in the book of Job. Just as God dispatched an evil spirit to deceive the prophets of King Ahab, you find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. So all demons are on, are on God's leash. For that we can be very thankful. Christians are confident the Bible assures us that, that Satan and God are not equal opposing forces. Nothing like that in the Bible at all. That notion is science fiction. God is God. Jesus is God. Satan is a created spirit. He's fallen. God is sovereign over spirits. That's real comforting to know. Because second, and quite disturbing, is to realize that we're, there were about 2,000 demons in this one man. So deceitful spirits can be anywhere. They can be anywhere. Do you ever wonder... If you attend, were to attend, some have attended. We've heard of others who attend. Uh, one of those real kind of crazy prophecy conferences where people run into some crazy-eyed people and they go there and, and, uh, and that, that individual there will give a prophecy about you. They'll say a prophecy and they'll be very convincing and you'll wonder, how do they have so much information about me? This must be from God, right? Wrong. How do they know my habits? How do they know what I like to eat? How do they know what my aspirations are? It's because evil spirits have probably seen what you're writing in your journal, folks. They know about you. They've passed it along to their dignitary at your prophecy conference who has astounded you with all of their knowledge about you. No, they don't know your future, but they won't tell you that. They're not omniscient, but they know enough about you to appeal to your flesh about the future and tell you about how wonderful you're going to be. That's what they do. And they can deceive you. That's why God tells us not to seek out our future. Repeatedly in Scripture. And when that's done, it is rebuked. I think Samuel tried to do some things about that as well. Um, Saul. Excuse me. We can be affected by these people's presence. Uh, excuse me, these demons' presence. It makes us vulnerable to the spiritual forces of deception and delusion. Because we're really impressed when people who we don't know can tell us something about ourselves. And then tell us what our life is going to be like tomorrow. But James 4.14 says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. No one's going to be able to tell us what our life is going to be like tomorrow. We're a vapor. Demons, though, could be anywhere. Except one place. One place. Can evil spirits indwell a born-again Christian? Good answer. I'd give a firm no. Thank you, Jerry. 2 Corinthians 6.15 indicates, this is just one spot of a number we could go to, saying, what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God, which our bodies are, with the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No, 
If God indwells you, you can't be demon-possessed. God will not indwell the same place that a demon indwells. But we can be tormented by them. We can be tormented by them. We can be deceived by them, even as Christians. And we can be affected by their presence. Especially if we're so naive that we don't respect what they can do, their power. Even Michael the archangel, Jude verse 9, it says, When he, the archangel, disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Even Michael didn't uh, dismiss the power of demons. The point is, we must not be dismissive about demons in our culture, though we are. We need to correct that. We need to remedy that because they will and are deceiving us today, folks. They are. But at the same time, we're thankful because we don't need to fear them because they are our Lord's subjects. They are created and they uh, are uh, harnessed by the Lord. Instead, what we do, instead of fearing them, Instead of allowing ourselves to be blindly dismissive of their existence, what we do is we prepare for spiritual battle because we recognize that even the Apostle Paul himself was tormented by a thorn in the flesh. It's called a messenger or angelos, an angel of Satan that tormented him. We do read in that same passage, it was permitted for Paul's benefit. It says it was to keep him humble. So when we face spiritual adversity and things come up against us, spiritual forces, often it's for our strengthening and for our humility. And briefly, we should ask, you know, what was Paul's thorn in in that context? uh, A lot of people think it was a bodily ailment. You can think that. That's not a horrible um, interpretation. There are a number of people who share that view Myself, I believe that the thorn was an infliction in Paul's ministry by others who who were demonically inspired. Look at someone that's proud. Look look at someone who has a lot of success in ministry. And Paul, Paul was tormented in his ministry. People chased him everywhere. Demonically possessed people. Uh, This... This uh, word here that we see, tormented, where it's a rare term, only appears five times in Scripture. Sometimes it's translated buffet. And it's descriptive of enduring maltreatment and violence from others. Especially for the faith. It, it was used twice in Matthew and Mark when Christ was beaten with fists and spat upon. The same word. He was tormented. He was, he was buffeted. It was used by Peter in 1 Peter 2.20 when he said, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, or tormented, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Again, uh, ill treatment from outsiders. And in 1 Corinthians 4, it says, uh, Paul writes, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed, and are roughly treated. They're tormented. They're buffeted by other people. um, Abused. And all of this indicates outside forces. Paul said that messenger of Satan was permitted by God to torment him to keep him humble. That's 2 Corinthians 12 if you want to look at that. 
So we must recognize that demonic forces are permitted by God to sometimes maltreat Christians to keep us humble. So we don't think more of ourselves than we actually are, which isn't much, about a vapor. Jesus told his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what we're to expect as Christians, our Lord says. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a fact. We will be. The word for persecuted here, it means to drive out. We'll be driven out. Uh, For those who stand for the gospel, satanic forces want to drive us out. Remember Paul when he was in Galatia and in Derbe and and Lystra and all those places. The the forces, the evil forces there wanted to drive him out. They even took him out and stoned him one time. They wanted him out. Paul advises Timothy in the same context. Persecutions such as happened to me at Antioch in Iconium... And at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Lord is in control, remember. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In that context, the persecutions come from men who are opposed to our message. They're opposed to the truth. They want to stop it. They want to drive that message away. They want to drive us away. Paul says, Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. That's Old Testament. Just as, he says, Jonas and Jambres, these men today also oppose the truth. Their opposition is to the truth. The truth refers to sound doctrine, sound biblical teaching. People don't want to hear it. They prefer tickling. That's what they would like to hear. Everywhere Paul went, he proclaimed sound doctrine. Everywhere he went, demonic forces tried to drive him away. Drive him out. The reference here to to Jonas and Jambres reminds me that they they were sorcerers back in the day of Moses. They were the Pharaoh's sorcerers and the magicians. They were demonically inspired and demonically empowered. They they were of the occult. They were diviners who would imitate Moses' miracles. Remember with the serpent and the the snakes. And they repeated, they imitated, they had a false spirituality. But they were demonically inspired, demonically empowered. In fact, Paul also says, still in this same context again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Imposters, deceiving and being deceived. Who does the deceiving? Satan. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. Today in the church, there are many false imitators. Many false imitators in Christianity who are demonically inspired, folks. They want to drive away the truth. They want to drive away people who, who bear the truth. They want it gone. They want it gone. Um, 1 Timothy 4.1 
Can't get any clearer than this. Paul tells Timothy, The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. So there are all kinds of false doctrines that prey on the church. Everything from legalism to license. Gerald and I are always talking about keeping it out of the ditches, remaining conservative, uh, uh, avoiding that which is sin, yet not instituting just laws for rituals, how you dress and and, and abstain from certain foods and things like that. that. That just becomes legalism. But then you run into license where people say, God doesn't care what you do. Just do whatever you want. Both of those are error. Both of those are demonic, folks. They oppose false teaching. That's why when we studied 1 John 4, the Apostle John advised us, Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets prophets have gone out into the world. Many. This is the spirit, John tells us, of who? The Antichrist. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. False teachers are demonically inspired. False teaching is spiritual warfare. We are up against spiritual warfare with false teaching, folks. Am I suggesting that all false teachers, everyone in doctrinal error, is demonly demonly possessed? I'm not suggesting that. But very likely, their doctrine, their false doctrine, originated from someone who is demonly possessed. Very likely, and they are repeating it. So our struggle isn't usually against that individual. Not always against that individual. The struggle is one of doctrinal truth. What does the Bible say? That's what the struggle is. That's our spiritual warfare. What is the truth? Jesus said the truth will set you free, right? The struggle is one of truth. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 6, Consistently be nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Verse 6 And in verse 13, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's the essential line of defense right there. One very major line of defense in spiritual warfare according to Ephesians 6, 17. Turning back to Ephesians 6 now, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Major article of defense against spiritual war, uh, in spiritual warfare. John 17, 17. This is now in Christ's high priestly prayer as he's praying for his disciples. He prays to the Father for them saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth, right? The word is truth. Ephesians six seventeen told us, The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. It is the word of truth. Very practical. It's our front line defense in battle. That's why we're a Bible church, folks. Number one, as a Christian Bible church, it is to teach the truth. We focus very much on practical teaching. Bear the sword of the Spirit, we are told. Um, We are to wreak havoc on the demonic forces by adhering to God's Word. That wreaks havoc on their defenses will surely at some level be persecuted for it. Demonic forces will persecute us and attempt to drive us out. 
They absolutely will. Also in spiritual battle, we need to be defenders of truth. How is that different? It's not merely biblical truth, folks. This one's going to hurt. Satan doesn't only twist doctrine. He distorts history. He misrepresents facts. Untruth promotes conflict, division in the world, in our nation, in our churches, in our families. That's why Christians are told in Ephesians 6 verse 14, we are to gird our loins with the truth. Girding our loins, that that refers to a soldier's belt where he would gird all of his uniform together, probably of his implements of warfare as well. Um, It would bind them all together, girded together. And in verse 14, when we look at that, at this verse, he's not talking about biblical truth. He's talking about truth, folks. All truth. A theological dictionary I referenced says of this Greek word, quote, It is used absolutely to denote a reality which is to be regarded as firm, therefore solid, valid, and binding. It's the truth. It thus signifies what is true. When used of persons, it sometimes expresses that which predominantly characterizes their speech, their action, their thought. It refers to one whose conduct falls under the norm of truth and therefore a man of integrity. Are we people of the truth? Do you realize we live in a world where where people don't even believe in an objective truth at all? Or an unprejudiced truth? Are we lacking that? The truth? Uh, This is nothing new. The world has always been full of this. When asked if he was a king, Jesus told Pilate, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, John 18.37. Do you remember what, how Pilate responded to that? Yeah. Like Ruth said, what is truth? Is this anything new? Lies, deception, all over the place. Do you find your at yourself asking that when watching television? What is truth? You know, the world belongs to Satan. It doesn't know truth. John 8.44 says, referring to Satan, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. The Apostle Peter even said to Ananias, Ananias, excuse me, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Here's someone professing to be a Christian and to give to the church. And Peter has to ask him, Why has Satan filled your heart, you liar? Lying at its root is demonic, folks. And we become conditioned to it as Christians because our society is conditioned to it. In Psalm 116, we're not sure whether King David wrote this psalm or not, but the psalmist writes, I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. 
How? I said in my alarm, the psalmist says, all men are liars. The fallen world is principally under the power of Satan. He's colonized it with liars, folks. It's everywhere. Politicians can be liars. Not all are liars. I'm not saying that. Politicians can be liars. Republicans can be liars. Democrats can be liars, folks. And independents can be liars. Doesn't matter what station you're looking at. The evening news is full of liars. Fox News can be liars. ABC News can be liars, folks. No one wants to stand for the truth. Everyone wants to appease their audience. That's what they want to do. They want to appease their audience. That's why they show a short clip and then add, you know, five minutes of their own commentary with it, of a very short eight-second clip. They distort the analysis, folks. Every, we got to know the demonic forces are always twisting truth. We can't do that. As Christians, we can't do that. Because we always look at those politicians and think, who would want to be one of them? You know, I know a couple politicians personally. They're not all that horrible. But they're swimming in a sea of untruth. A sea of untruth. We'd never want to be like one of them, though. You know what? As a pastor, even in Christians, uh, among Christians and in churches, not, not any particular church, but pastors in general are astonished at how people who identify themselves as Christian, call themselves Christian, habitually lie. Whether it's in counseling, marriage reconciliation, whatever it might be, habitually lie. You'll hear with a lot of pastors today, when there's a grievance, there's a conflict, one way or another, uh, a lot of pastors dare not even meet in, in counsel anymore without another witness. Because the people will walk out and lie. They will lie. Even if you have a witness, they'll lie. Lying is satanic. It's one of the chief weapons that Satan uses to destroy. Destroy our culture. Destroy churches. Destroy families. It's spiritual battle. That's what it is, folks. It is spiritual battle. We need to recognize it as spiritual battle. We don't want to be like them. Do you want to do some collateral damage to Satan? Don't we? Here's one, Ephesians 4.27. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such as a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to the hearer. Gird yourself with truth. Be a person who speaks truth. Don't distort facts. Don't fabricate facts. It doesn't mean avoid all hard dialogue. It doesn't mean that at all. We are to engage in dialogue. One of the biggest mistakes that the Christian church has done has avoided dialogue on the important topics. We are not to do that. But when we do engage in the dialogue, represent truth to the best of our ability, to the best of what we know it. Be truthful. Be kind. That will infuriate the devil. We stand for doctrinal truth. Spiritual warfare. We teach what is true from the Word of God. We stand for objective truth. That which we know is real, we stand for. 
closely related to this girding the truth and the uh, taking up truth is what is called in verse 14 a breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean? A breastplate of righteousness. You know, righteousness, in comparison to objective truth, it has to do with practical behavior. Things that are practical. A righteous person does the right thing, the correct thing, the appropriate thing. Because it's within his or her immediate power to do it. This is, this is different than believing you're on the right side of an argument. This is different than believing I'm righteous because I'm on this side of the aisle versus that side of the aisle. Completely different. Righteousness is an outworking of our faith. Our indwelling faith evidenced by good works done to others. That's what it is. James 2.17 says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. James' reply is, show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, we're never saved by works, but we are definitely saved to do good works. That's righteousness. Doing things correctly for the right reason for the right person. Practical examples are given throughout Scripture. If a brother or sister is without clothing, in need of daily food, what do you do? You help them if it's within your ability Matthew 25, we might look at that a little closer again in a couple weeks. That emphasizes, especially to Christians, especially to other, other Christians who don't have, people in poorer countries, those on other continents, as, as there was always relief going to um, Jerusalem and the poorer churches, people who are in need, other Christians, we practically give it to them. We find a way to give it to them if it's within our ability. If it's within our ability, it's about us individually. Righteousness is about taking care of the orphan, about the widow, even doing the right thing. Rahab welcoming the spies. She took them in and showed them a way out. That is righteousness. Important thing here about righteousness. It is an outworking of our faith. Doing the good things... Doing the righteous thing, the appropriate thing, is an outworking of our faith voluntarily. It is not, it is not a compulsion. There's a lot of talk around uh, in our day about compelling people to have to give. To have to do the right thing. To mandatorily participate in different things in our society. A lot of them, uh, government-sponsored even. And they're saying, well, you have to. We're going to tax you for it. Folks, that isn't something individually within our control. When we do things that are righteous, it is to be things that we do as a cheerful giver, not begrudgingly, Scripture says. Do it with a cheerful heart. Find opportunities to give where it's within your power. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for Scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. Satan hates cheerful givers. Satan hates them. You want to poke holes in his defenses? Do something good for someone to tell them about Jesus? Don't ask for anything in return. They don't see that very much. Most of the time they're receiving because someone's been compelled. Do it out of your heart. A couple more. A couple more. 
I think that the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, faith and salvation, they're they're obvious prerequisites to all this. I'm not going to delve into those. If we really want to stick it to the forces of darkness, I'd like you to look at verse 16. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. We can poke holes in Satan's defenses all day long by sharing the good news. We can share that there's been peace made between God and men through the blood of the cross. That is the gospel. That he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. That's spiritual warfare. We take that forth, shot our feet with it. It means we take the gospel wherever we go. It's on your feet. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news, right? Not everyone has to go to Niger, Niger, I guess French, speaking appropriate French. Not everyone has to learn French. Not everyone has to go overseas. We can support those who go do it. Remember we were talking in Nineveh even. It can take off. The gospel can take off wherever they are. Not all of us have to do that. We're thankful that we have people that that are called to that in ministry. But we can do it right here, folks. Right here. Every day, wherever we go. Verse 19 gives us a pattern. Do it with boldness. Make known the mystery of the gospel for which I, Paul, was an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it, we may speak boldly as we ought to speak. You know, Paul ended up in jail. I don't think any of us really want to end up there. But Paul wasn't in jail because of his tactics. He wasn't an offensive individual. He was in jail because of spiritual warfare. There are people that persecuted him and wanted to drive him away. And in 2 Corinthians 6.2 it says, Now, Paul writes, Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. So we do things in a, in a proper manner. Yet the gospel itself is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. That is 1 Peter 2.8. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be offensive to people, folks. Not quite ready for prison just yet? Demolish the strongholds right here locally. Start with small acts of reconnaissance. Talk to your neighbors. Get to know them. Ask them open-ended questions. Don't force them in the corner. Allow them to respond. You don't have to finish the conversation the same day. Put a gospel tract in a power bill. Better yet, put it in your tax return. You ever done that? I do that. Along with my tax return, I go, that baby's going to go off somewhere in Washington, probably. Always politely compliment your waitress. Leave her a nice tip with a gospel tract and invitation to church. Over time, you'll grow bolder. Folks, bolder and bolder, it will become second nature, and you'll be looking for opportunities everywhere you go. Your your feet will be shod with the gospel of peace. Find ways to slip the gospel in behind enemy lines. Excuse me. Water. Slip the gospel in behind enemy lines. I got a great little, very brief story. Carolyn, can I share this about how you came to faith? Doesn't matter, I'm going to anyhow. <laughs> Slip that gospel in. And there are many more ways than this to do that. We talk about tracks a lot because it's very easy and practical 
to, to talk about. But Jerry came to faith, and he was very convicted. His life changed immediately. He took the pack of cigarettes, threw it out the window of the car. You littered while being a Christian. Um, but anyhow, he had a change. He had a change, and he was so concerned about his wife being saved, and she couldn't stand the change. She hated the change. She was going to leave Jerry. Over a very short period of time, this all happened. She was going to pack up their child and leave. She told her mom, I'm leaving. So what did Jerry do? Jerry got advised by a friend of his to take a gospel tract, one with an alluring front. Ours says, ticket to heaven on it. And he didn't lay it on her dresser. He laid it on top of his own belongings on uh, the counter, right? On top of maybe his hat and his books or whatever. And just laid it there, just where she could see it enough. It was a landmine, folks. She went while he was gone because she was so angry about things, and she read it, and she gave her life to the Lord right there. She was saved by the gospel. He was sneaky, and she was saved. She was transferred between the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. She got delivered from evil, folks. This is how we get delivered from evil. We have to recognize this battle between good and evil, the spiritual forces. It's real, very much real. Um, Ultimately, God is in command. We must pray is the last one I'm going to go to here in Ephesians 6. This is all-encompassing right here. This is the weapon. Verse 18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. We pray for utterance. We pray for opportunities. We pray for God's Spirit to go ahead and convict of sins. We pray that we'll have the courage to proclaim the gospel because we realize that God is in charge. He's in charge of all of this. And just as Jesus crossed the Jordan and freed that demoniac from 2,000 evil spirits, Jesus too can deliver us from the evil spirits that are in our land today. He can do it. He's, He's wanting us to put on the armor, folks. That simple. That simple. And when Christ has done a mighty work, we'll see people's lives changed as Carolyn's and ours were changed. Every one of us has a unique story. Um, Just like the demoniac, Mark 5.15, the people from town came. This is what we want to see in our culture and around the world and in Niger. The people from town came and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. It's for real, folks. It's for real. Consider our roles in spiritual warfare, the things that we are called to do. Proclaim, defend the word of God, number one. Be truthful. Be honest. Be reasonable. Have integrity. Then perform righteous acts of kindness. And use those righteous acts of kindness to be a bridge to the gospel with that, whom you, that person whom you're sharing with. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. And finally, we need to be people of prayer. Let's join in in prayer. If you're not on our prayer letter uh, that goes out once a week, email goes out on Wednesday, usually sometimes Thursday. Uh, give me your email address. Get on our prayer list. And we'll try to make better use of that. Um, Wednesday evening. 
Usually we have a lesson. We're going through Genesis right now. I'm teaching some. Anthony Alberino is going to be teaching some. And then we pray afterwards. So consider those opportunities as well. It's all casual. And um, we need to be people of prayer. You know what's most encouraging me now as we close? Most encouraging of this Ephesians 6. So we look at all this, this armor and all this spiritual warfare. Most encouraging, every one of them is within our reach. Every one of them is within our reach. Jesus never indicates that we should strike out, you know, like Indiana Jones in, in, in Demon Hunter, trying to find demon people and demon-possessed people. We're not required to do that. We don't need to identify the demon-possessed people. We, we aren't required to know the, the correct um, formula for exorcisms, all that movie. We don't have to do that. We're never asked to do that. The whole passage is preparing us for spiritual battle, for spiritual struggle. We're never once asked to categorize what kind of demon we're dealing with. We don't need to know that. We simply are to do what God has asked and have faith that He will win the battle. That's all we're to do. We hear people lament about the spiritual battles. Fanciful books are written about how to succeed in spiritual warfare. But let us be those people who are called to stand firm against the evil powers of darkness by faithfully doing these simple things which are within our reach. Any spirit-indwelled Christian can do these. They're completely reasonable and achievable. Let's commit ourselves to do them and leave the victory to God. I want to close in prayer. Normally, I say a prayer, I'm going to ask that we pray together because I was reading this line when I titled this Lord, deliver us from evil. It's a line of the Lord's Prayer. We don't recite that a lot, but it is a prayer that God, uh, Christ, modeled for us. So I'd ask that we would all together say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and deliver us from evil. evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.